Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's show, we'll discuss a Haaretz expose that is causing shockwaves in the ultra-Orthodox world from Israel to many other communities. But before that, what is happening between Israel's new government and the man who wants to be the new Sultan in Ankara, President Erdogan? With the Sultan It's a story that had a happy ending. Mordi and Natalie Oknin, a couple from Central Israel, who were arrested in Turkey during a trip to Istanbul and accused of spying, or at least doing some kind of espionage, were released on Thursday morning and landed back in Israel. Why were they arrested? And more interesting, perhaps, why did Turkey decide to release them so quickly and allow them to come back to Israel to try to understand the background to this story and what it could mean for the Turkish-Israeli relationship? We have with us in studio today Dr. Galia Lindenstrauss of the Israeli uh, INSS in Tel Aviv, the Institute for National Security Studies. Hello, Dr. Lindenstrauss. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. Were you surprised to wake up on Thursday morning and read that the, the Oknins are back in Israel? I was very relieved to hear it. It could have been much worse. It could have been much more complicated. So I was really happy to hear they were back in Israel. They landed right into our first winter storm, which both of us are still feeling a bit today in the studio. But why do you think, first of all, this whole thing happened? Was it something that was planned by the government in Turkey at any level? Was there any kind of... a message being sent to Israel or was it just accident and coincidence meeting one another and leading to the detention of this completely innocent couple? My feeling after the story also ended happily, as you said, is that it was a coincidence that the initial uh, suspicion uh, raised by a waiter, supposedly, was something just because of the level of Uh, basically, th- since the failed coup in Turkey, we have suspicion in Turkey. Everything that's related to Erdogan is very sensitive. So my feeling, it was a local initiative. But once they, th- it was decided to charge them with espionage, and after the interior minister in Turkey talked about them, then it was already something that you couldn't say it's just, uh, just the court system, because we know the court system is not completely free in Turkey. So the way I understand it from your theory, and I have to say it seems to make a lot of sense, Somebody just accused them of doing something suspicious without any kind of organized intent. Uh, as if, if I, you know, if I saw someone doing something strange in the street here in Israel, maybe I would report it to the police. And instead of the police officers asking them two or three questions and realizing these are innocent tourists who just snapped a photo of Erdogan's palace on their phone, it became, you know, layers upon layers then of politics and suspicion until eventually it got to the desk of Erdogan himself. Yes, it's a very unique couple, by the way. We don't have that many female bus drivers in Israel. True. And Natalie Oknin is a bus driver, and her husband is also a bus driver. So they basically were in commercials uh, of the Egged uh, bus company. So really, it didn't, just the story didn't make sense. So it's a, and at the end of the day, I think the Turkish side understood it. And still, while we, we are, again, very, very happy that they are home, It is interesting how quickly, because, you know, there was great concern here. People were really afraid that this could drag on for weeks or maybe longer. And then on Thursday morning, we all woke up to the happy news. W- why do you think that part of the story happened? Actually, this part of the story makes a lot of sense because uh, with all the crisis in Turkish-Israeli relations, uh, the Turkish side did not touch the tourism. 
Uh, basically, Israeli tourists can still go to Turkey without a visa, even though there's a lot of suspicion between government, no visa requirements for Israelis. Uh, just before the COVID pandemic, we had half a million Israeli tourists go to Turkey, which was the return to and the level of tourists before the marmor. That's an annual number. That's a big number. Half a million Israeli tourists, which was exactly the number we had before the marmor. So mm-hmm. really um, a lot. Of, and we have Turkish Airlines, which is a very... Uh, the Tel Aviv-Istanbul line is one of their busiest lines. And we also have trade between Israel and Turkey. We're talking about almost $6 billion dollars of trade, mutual trade, in 2020, which makes Turkey one of Israel's big uh, trading partners. And as I said, in general, uh, the Turkish side basically benefited even more than Israel from this uh, tourist and trade uh, relationship. And hence, it didn't touch it. And so the release of these innocent tourists makes sense in this respect. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it was also a Turkish interest not to turn this story into something more frightening uh, and that would basically keep Israelis out of Turkey. Yes, this story really got mega headlines in uh, Israel. Everybody I met this past week. It was the only st- a, honestly, it was, it was only, the only story was the people only were talking story, about. Yes, it was the only story. Sorry about my voice. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, you were probably invited to a lot of radio programs. Yes, a lot, a lot of work surrounding these stories. And also people just met me. Everybody met me in the street. Neighbors, uh, friends, family. They asked me, what is the story here? When they will be released? <laughs> like it was really people took this story very much to the heart. And hence it had, if it would have continued, this would have had a very negative impact on Israel's willingness to go to Turkey. And I think in general, Turkey is a, basically a superpower in terms of tourism. It, before the corona, it got 30 million tourists annually. It can't allow itself to have these stories. Uh, mm. In social media, they go everywhere. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it starts in Israel, but uh, probably many of our readers on HowArts.com were people from abroad who also... perhaps were asking themselves, wow, should I go to this country if they're just arresting innocent people in the street and accusing them of spying? So I, I totally see the point. Does the fast resolution of this crisis perhaps hint at a broader Israeli-Turkish reproachment, some improvement in the relationship after many years of crisis and tension? Uh, definitely there is good vibes. Uh, we had a first uh, phone call between our Prime Minister Bennett and And the Turkish President Erdogan, this is the first phone call not only between Erdogan and Bennett since Bennett got into office, but also the first phone call between an Israeli Prime Minister and Erdogan since 2013. So this is a dramatic... 2013, it's when Obama was in Israel and basically almost uh, forced Netanyahu to call Erdogan before he took off back to America, correct? Yes, yes. When Netanyahu and Erdogan spoke in 2013, it was related to the Mavi Marmara and Netanyahu apologized to... Uh, before uh, Erdogan. So this is a very rare occasion in the past decade to have a conversation between Israeli Prime Minister and Erdogan. And I have to say that all we need to have a more normality in Israeli-Turkish relations is to bring back the ambassadors to Ankara and Tel Aviv. They have not been in office since 2018, uh, following the U.S. decision to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. One of Erdogan's reactions was to pull out the ambassador Erdogan. from uh, Tel Aviv and also to tell the Israeli ambassador in Ankara go home mm-hmm. for consultation. Uh, interestingly, uh, the Shoged Affairs now in uh, Ankara is an experienced Israeli diplomat who used to be the Israeli ambassador in Bulgaria. So we already have the right person even to, in place just to, just, just to promote. Just upgrade them a bit. Yeah, we, we have the right person. Uh, we don't need that much uh, to return uh, to uh, normal diplomatic relations. But I have to say, we're not returning anywhere anymore. Uh, to the 1990s, or even what happened before the Mavi Marmara. There's a lot of mistrust between the countries. The countries have moved in their own uh, national policies to different directions, and hence 
the, the, a lot of interest. There's also collision of interest in many respects. And it's interesting that you do see an opportunity to get closer with all the, uh, of course, uh, other obstacles that you mentioned, because just a month ago, we, I think, or maybe even less, we saw headlines about Turkey arresting a Mossad ring on its soil. And we even had uh, Louis Fishman discuss it here on the podcast. So it's a very volatile move from accusing Israel of running a spy operation in your borders to now speaking with Bennett. And I understand there's ongoing dialogue between President Herzog and uh, people in Erdogan's office. A very surprising turn of events in a way. Basically, the story about the supposedly spying in Turkey was about Palestinians spying after Palestinian students in higher institutions. This story, at least, it made sense. You could understand the logic. Again, I don't know if it's true or not true, but this story sort of made sense. It was not a story about espionage, Israeli espionage against Turkey. Yes, I guess what you Which was this, this, this story about. Yes, uh, Israeli-Turkish relations have had a lot of ups and downs in the past decades, mostly downs. We have to say, we have to be, be sincere here. Last question I want to ask you politically, domestically for Erdogan. What would it mean to get closer to Israel? Has there been any impact for our story with the Oknins? How is this playing out domestically in Turkish politics? Basically, in Israeli headlines, the big drama was this couple. But in Turkish headlines, what is happening in the bigger drama is the, the economy. Mm-hmm. The Turkish lira is really uh, going down uh, 30% since March. Uh, they are entering a stage of hyperinflation. This is, has a huge impact on people, regular people. And uh, we see that in uh, polls, the Justice and Development Party is no longer leading. We see that if elections would be today, they would lose. Uh, so this is the big story. Uh, what is happening in, uh, with the Israel is not really an issue of major concern. All these years, people in Israel were saying, when is Erdogan going to come down? Now we see him uh, in a tough political spot. And just at that time, we're actually getting closer to him. Interesting uh, <laughs> turn of events. Yes, I mean, Erdogan has been in power uh, almost 20 years. Uh, for better or worse, Israel does. It's, it's the person you already know. Uh, in the future, we, we don't know what will be in Turkey. We don't know if Erdogan, if he goes down, if he'll go down uh, quietly or it will be with chaos. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a worrying uh, trend now today in Turkey. We'll keep following. Galia Lindenstrauss from the INSS, thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion. Thank you very much. After the break, we discuss a Haaretz expose that is causing shockwaves in the ultra-Orthodox world with Anshul Pfeffer. Last week, a Haaretz investigation by Aaron Rabinovich and Shira Elk revealed multiple accusations of sexual abuse, allegedly by Chaim Walter, a famous Israeli children's author in the ultra-Orthodox society in Israel. To discuss the investigation and its fallout and the wider impact for the ultra-Orthodox society, with us today is Anshel Pfeffer. Hi, Anshel. Hi, Amir. How are you? Great. Anshel wrote a fascinating column on the subject this weekend. And before we dive into his thesis, I want to ask, first of all, Anshel, for the listeners who might not be so aware, who is Chaim Walder and why is the story that Aaron and Shira reported for Haaretz so significant? So if uh, any of our listeners are from any Orthodox community in Israel or in the United States or in Britain, Chaim Walder will be a name that they know. Chaim Walder is without a doubt the most successful writer just not just for children but in general he writes also grown-ups novels 
in the ultra-Orthodox community, and his books are widely read across Orthodox communities, not just in his own Lithuanian group of ultra-Orthodoxy, the Haredi Lithuanian group. And he's the J.K. Rowling of the Haredi world, and to be a, a writer who is accepted by the Haredi world, it's not just enough to be a good writer, it's not just enough to be successful in sales. And I think that probably it just in number of sales, he's probably the most successful Israeli writer of any 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 genre and any community, just in the number of sales in Hebrew and in translations to English and Yiddish. You need also to have the endorsement of the senior rabbi because Children's books is a very serious business. If you are someone who wants your children to grow up in a traditional ultra-Orthodox way in which they don't just consume any children's book, they don't read Harry Potter, and they don't read anything else which our non-Orthodox listeners are uh, know and aware of. So it, it has to be with the blessing and approval of the rabbis, otherwise people are not going to buy the books for their children. They're not going to buy the book, and these books won't be sold in the bookstores which cater to that community. And we're talking about bookstores that exist in Orthodox neighborhoods in Israel and also in the United States and in Britain. There are certain books which will be sold there, and other books simply will not will not be on the bookshelves. And in these in these stores, if anyone's ever been there, you'll know you have entire shelves which are devoted to the dozens of books written by Chaim Walder. And Chaim Walder has done something that I think no other uh, other ultra-orthodox writer did before him: is he succeeded in both creating characters which are compelling, contemporary characters of children that the readers can identify with real children who deal with real life problems and challenges of being a religious child and anybody who's grown up in those communities knows that it's not a picnic and at the same time having the rabbi say that the messages and the, the, the themes of these books fully conform with the values that the rabbis want those to be the values that the children will grow up mm -hmm. on and become and remain members of the Haredi community. So when a story comes out, um, and this is again the uh, Haaretz uh, investigative report, showing that women uh, accuse him of uh, abusing them sexually uh, some when they were minors, this also, in a way, implicates the rabbinical leadership that gave him the blessing all those years. Yes, because Chaim Valder is not just a successful writer. He is someone who has received the rabbi's blessing to be the one to partake the message, the ideology, what the Lithuanian rabbis call the hashkafa, the, the view of this type of Judaism, which they claim is the authentic Judaism going back, going back 2000 years. Obviously, that's a myth, but that is what they want their community to believe in. They want everyone to believe in that. So he is someone who has received the blessing of the rabbis, and the endorsement isn't just implicit in the fact that he can his books can be sold to this community, but he's also a writer for grown-ups, both in his, he has also novels for grown-ups, and more importantly, within the Haredi community, he, until this, until Friday, when his column was suspended, he was a columnist in Yated Neeman, which is the daily newspaper of Lithuanian Haredi Jewry, every word in Yated Neeman, literally every word is poured over by 
what's what's called a, a spiritual committee of rabbis who are appointed by more senior rabbis, and their job is to check every single word in the man that it confirms to the ideology. And if you are someone who is a weekly uh, 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 columnist, in, in, especially in the Friday edition, which is the main edition before Shabbat, that means that you are someone who is seen as a spokesperson for the rabbis themselves, for the for the ideology. So there could be no more establishment figure than Valder. Mm -hmm. And in your great explanation now, Angel, you hinted at a, a very interesting development that followed the, the story, which is that unlike in previous cases, we saw also that Wilder is uh, being in at least to some degree excommunicated at least in some parts of the community correct well Wilder has been writing for Yeterneman for 30 years now this is almost as long as the paper existed it, it, it was first published in 1985 so he is really a core part of this establishment which articulates the the, the you know the, the key Haredi ideology and what we've seen in you know what we saw last week that people we were waiting um, you know aaron and shira's uh, expose in in harris came out and came online on thursday night and ever since then this has really been the main topic of discussion in every haredi family certainly in you know in the houses and the courts of the rabbis what are we going to do about wilder and suddenly wilder has to suddenly they have to come up with a policy do they basically acknowledge the fact that Haaretz, let's remember, we work for Haaretz, but Haaretz for the Haredi community is a secular newspaper that they see as being hostile to their way of life. But Haaretz was the newspaper which came out with the story. Do they ignore it and let Valder continue writing his column? Or do they acknowledge the fact that Valder has been exposed as someone who takes advantage of women and, 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 of, and of young women, of, of minors, basically someone who uses his position. And he's not just a writer. He has become, uh, over the years, a, a very sought-after family therapist and someone who really is, you know, who sits with members of families and young people who have troubles and is paid to do that. And the rabbis give their blessing to his, uh, to his guidance, to his counseling. And suddenly the rabbis have to acknowledge the fact that they've given their endorsement to the wrong guy, to someone who is causing damage to these women and to these, uh, and to these young people. And, and so what did and, they decide to do? Well, as we reported, and as everybody who reads Yatenneman saw on Friday, on Wednesday night, the, the, the board of Yatenneman, the board of Yatenneman doesn't do anything serious without the rabbis telling them to do so, told Wilder, you're either going to... Uh, announced that you're taking uh, indefinite leave or we're going to have to fire you. And Wilder uh, on Wednesday night put out a statement saying that he's taking a break from all his public positions to clear his name and spend time with his families. We, we, we all know what that means. Obviously, Yatene Man will never write anything about anything which is any kind of sexual connection, certainly nothing to do with members of the community being uh, accused of sexual harassment or assault. But the fact that on Friday morning, the Atene Man subscribers didn't see uh, Wilder's column in their newspaper meant meant so much. It meant basically the rabbis were acknowledging the fact 
that they had made a mistake. And we don't see that very often in the Haredi community. Why do you think this time was different? Because we have heard, unfortunately, of stories in the past, there were similar accusations, but there was not a similar response from the rabbinical leadership, like in this case. Well, first of all, let's compare him to other people who, who similar allegations have been made against. We had uh, another uh, investigation by the same a team of Haaretz reporters, I remember Navich and Shira Elk, which uh, accused Yudha Meshi Zahav, the founder of Zaka, a year and a half ago. But Yudha Meshi Zahav was, was already, a, even though he was a Haredi person, he was a figure who was much more prominent outside the Haredi community. He wasn't someone who was working with the rabbi's endorsement. We ha- we've had, over recent years, uh, in, in other parts of the Israeli media, serious allegations against Rabbi Lezer Berland, the leader of the Shuvabanim Hasidic sect. Once again, this is a sect of Hasidism, very, you know, very secluded, very self-contained sect. Once again, the, the, the main rabbis, the Lithuanian rabbis, said they didn't have any responsibility for it. So one thing which made this story very, very different was the fact that this was someone who was from the heart of the establishment, that they had to respond, even if they haven't actually responded by saying anything, they had to act. Whether or not he would have been allowed to continue to write in the attendant manner would have been a massive statement from the rabbis. The fact that he, he was forced to, to, to resign or to take a sabbatical or whatever it is uh, on Wednesday night was, you know, was in itself a huge thing. But I think there's two other very important developments that we have to point out. One is that even the most secluded, isolated, Haredi leadership understands that it can't ignore the fact that there are allegations of sexual harassment and and sexual violence. It's something that even within the Haredi community, where these things are usually dealt with quietly, if they're at all dealt with within the community, they have to respond here. And I think, and this will be interesting, I think for for our, especially for our listeners in the United States, usually in, at least in the last few decades, the leadership and the tone of of the Haredi community has come from Israel, it's come from the main centers of Haredi life in Jerusalem and in Nebrak. That's where the main rabbis have, have, have passed down law. And for the first time we've seen, for the first time in a long time, I think in decades at least, we've seen initiative coming from the Haredi, the other big Haredi center, and that's the center in the United States. And we've seen it coming really from the grassroots. Mm-hmm. The first, I'd call it a, a Haredi institution, which openly decided we are cutting our ties with Wilder was actually a store, a very famous store in the Haredi community called Eichler's in Brooklyn, which is a, Eichler's Judaica, which is a big store which sells books and all other and kinds of And they said stuff. we're taking him off the shelves. And Mordi Getz, the CEO of Eichler's, on, uh, on Tuesday last week said, openly put he put out a letter on social media saying that we that we are we have as a community have to take responsibility for these things we need to protect the victims and therefore for the time being we will stop selling Chaim Valder's books now once again Chaim Valder's books would have been sold in their thousands in a shop like Eichler's especially in these weeks towards Hanukkah where families will you know where parents will be buying parent will be buying presents for their children Valder's books would be flipped and see that he's He's a Haredi person, but he's he's very open about 
issues which are less less discussed in the Haredi community. He took the lead there. Followed followed by him, there was a, 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 a Osher ad, which is a supermarket chain under Haredi ownership in in Israel, which it's a supermarket, but it's had over the years a section of shelves devoted to Chaim Valder's books. They also took his books off the shelves. And once that happened, I think it was impossible for the, the dam broke. The who, dam broke at that point, basically. The dam broke. Also, what was happening behind the scenes was additional uh, cases. From what we are hearing, women and uh, who had who claimed to have been assaulted or taken advantage by Valder had come forward, not to the media. But they had made their cases known to senior rabbis. From what we know in the, call it the courts or the offices of senior rabbis in Israel, more complaints were accumulating against Valder. And I think that by Wednesday night, it was clear that he could no longer uh, write his column in a newspaper which represents the voice of, of ultra-Orthodox Jewry. That's very true, Amir. I think that what we've seen here is a shift in the dynamic within the ultra-Orthodox community. And we're talking about rabbis who are in their 90s. The, these are the last of the old generation of Lithuanian rabbis who were born before the Holocaust. Some of them were born actually in Eastern Europe, you know, in pre, you know, pre the destruction of the Holocaust. And this is the last of the group of rabbis going back to the 1950s, whose mission it was to rebuild the, what they called the world of Torah to rebuild the yeshivas, to rebuild the communities which were destroyed and exterminated in Eastern Europe during the Holocaust, to rebuild them both in, in Israel and in the United States and in Britain, and to, you know, to the whole idea that that their mission was to, let's remember, in the 1950s, there were very few Haredi Jews still around. Many had, most had been exterminated by the Nazis, uh, or many, and, and after the Holocaust, many of them had left Haredi life, there was a crisis of faith and, and you know, life, whether in the United States or the new state of Israel, seemed much more attractive. And many of their young uh, people left uh, religious life and became secular. And since then, there's been a mission to rebuild, to replenish, to have as many children as possible and to bring all those children up in, a, in, in, in within this very isolated, very uh, circumscribed uh, way of life. And the rabbis were directing how people should live their lives, how the Torah should be taught, how the mitzvot, the, the commandments of the Torah should be observed. You know, this was a very top-down society where the rabbis deliver the orders and those who are within the community obey. And what we're seeing here, and we saw that also, uh, I think over the last two years uh, during the pandemic in, in many instances, we're, we're increasingly seeing a situation where the rabbis are, are being forced to react to pressures coming from the grassroots, coming from a much younger community. And there's a massive discrepancy between the age of the rabbis, who are, like I say, in the, many of them in the 80s and 90s, or even, even across the, the age of 100, and this very young community, because as we know, the birth rate. And maybe, maybe also in means of communication, like people, you know, read exactly, stories on the, the internet. The, you know, for many years, they managed to keep the, the outside world outside. They managed to prohibit people from watching television. The reason that there are newspapers like, like yeah, Ted Man are because secular newspapers are forbidden. So they managed to keep the, the outside world out. And what the internet has done, especially through smartphones and through social media networks, is with the much younger generation of Haredi men and women, 
a lot of them, not all of them, because a lot of them listen to the rabbis and don't have smartphones and don't go online. A lot of them still are online and are learning these things. And a lot of them have read the Haaretz uh, expose, whether they read it on, on our own website or, they, or it was copied and pasted into, into multiple uh, Haredi social media platforms and, and groups and so on. They've all read it. They've all heard about it. Even though it was published in this terrible secular newspaper called Haaretz, they all know what was written there. And it's, since then, it has accumulated extra layers of, of, of stories and reports. And the rabbis had no choice. Even though some of the rabbis we know were aware of the rumors about Valda, which have been going around for a while, the fact that it was out there forced a reaction from the rabbis. And like we said, this is a this is the dynamic of the, the, the top-down hierarchy of the Haredi community is, is being reversed here. And this, this will have implications far beyond Chaim Valder's career. It will have implications beyond even the question of how issues of sexual assault and harassment are dealt with in the Haredi community. This will have, I think, big implications on, on, on the way the community views the decisions of the rabbis. If the rabbis could have allowed someone like Valder to have so much influence and actually real power, because Valder is someone who just by being a, a therapist knows so many things, so many inside secrets of some of the most important families in the Haredi community. This will be something that will, I think, damage the hierarchy and the standing of the senior rabbis. Angel, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. And I invite, of course, our listeners to read Angel's article from Thursday. The Chaim Wilder scandal is another failure for the infallible rabbis. Find it on haaretz.com. Uh, again, thank you for joining us, Angel. Thank you for having me, Amir. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. We'll be back again here on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.